Hey, this is Bob in the Don't Die Podcast, brought to you by Ohana Fest down in Dana Point, and brought to you by Live Nation, bringing you concerts all over the world. It all begins with getting off drugs, people. Let's go out and live life. Get sober, get the right treatment for you, and stop dying. Stop dying, Chuck. That's the new intro. That wow, is. Wow, it's very nice. Thank you, and uh, stop dying, Mike. Stop dying, Chuck. That's a nice thing to say. I think we should. I think we should just have that as like a greeting. Far well, as like changing greetings, they're saying people even aren't shaking hands anymore. That COVID stopped the tradition that had been going on for 150 years. Right. I think yeah. Instead of hey, how are you doing? Just say hey, don't hey, die. Stop dying, would you? <laughs> stop dying. <laughs> so I'm wa- I'm watching right now. I w- I witnessed two debacles of our Los Angeles Clippers, and our season has ended. Ended, Chuck. I know you. I've never even paid attention to sports, but I'm going to fill. No, I in. love hockey. Before you go into that, Wiley actually has some kind of uh, a cool uh, thing to talk to you about. Let's thank our uh, our new sponsors properly, uh, Eddie Vetter's uh, Ohana Fest, which has been going on since 2015. It's a artist-run festival and uh, Live Nation and our good friend in Long Beach cohort, Mark Smith. There are still tickets available. You just have to go to like StubHub and do a trader thingy or whatever like that. You guys all know because you've been, Ohana Fest is an awesome family event. You know, kids under five are free. Did you know that, Bob? No, I did not. Know. Yeah. Kids so under I have five two are free. children that will get in for free. Yeah. yeah. Anyways. And, that um, cuts down on the price. Well, so, yeah, Mike, for, you're telling people to go to StubHub. That's not the right spot. You go to it is because Ohana. What? Yes, it is. Uh, there's all different kinds of outlets, and they've all bought the tickets. And you know, oh yeah, the, okay. yeah. So then you have so to pay the have, StubHub fees, of which they can sometimes be. As I need much a miracle. I need itself. a miracle. Yes, but yeah, that's the only way but, you're going to see this because it is sold out. From you know from a uh, standpoint of, of or roll the somewhere. dice come down to the parking lot and see if you can buy some no, real you know tickets. what you can do so here's so what Bob, you can do no but mike come on let me let me just stop being so serious this is what you can do you can bring your children under five and just let them walk in for free and wait for them to come out when they're done see it partying oh yeah that's <laughs> free babysitting that's probably not a good idea so they have free babysitting yeah, yeah. You can just bring right. a four-year-old, tell him walk in there, <laughs> go in there to hang out. Bob's <laughs> telling me to stop being so serious and just let your kids go in there for free. Uh, you let your fly. kids in, and then you tell the security, my kids are lost. And I'll let you into the kids' lost booth. My kids inside. I got what the fuck is going on. <laughs> <laughs> So well, you I can't mean, get no, around it. Oh, yeah. That's the way wow. us old punk rockers think. We just got to get in for free somehow, right? <laughs> I don't know if it's punk rock. I know it's poor people. September 24th. I, you know, like, I don't know. <laughs> Is it the same thing? Yeah. Punk rock the same shit, right? Board? Same shit. Bob, September 24th, Kings of Leon headlining. September 25th is Eddie Vedder. And September 26th is Pearl Jam. I think everybody all knows that. But a lot of the uh, bands that are playing... Underneath them are awesome bands, and we're going to be covering those bands in the Don't Die podcast up until the Hohana Fest. Maybe we'll I heard up. I heard Chuck and me and you are going to be there. Oh, we are. We are working. Our good friend Mark Smith is working on a live podcast of the Don't Die from the Storyteller stage. Wow. Uh, so I Hohana think Fest. we need the Don't Die Milwaukee guys to come out for that. 
Well, yeah, you can pay for their tickets. That'd be no, nice. no, they got to pay for their tickets. Okay. <laughs> I'm not paying for their ticket to the concert. Hey. Easy. Their airline ticket. No, no, Just no, have no, somebody no. do a GoFundMe for them in their, in their neighborhood. You know, sell cookies, <laughs> yeah. or lemonade. Okay, That's so <laughs> let's get on with this. That's Wiley Daily. Hey. We're on part two of Wiley Daily talking to us because we had so much we did not cover last time. Talk, talk about what you saw. Well, Bob. Yeah. What were you doing Bob. at the Dodger game the night before last? I was feeding my baby, is what everybody said. Explain to me who you had because it looked like basically you two of so I was at the Dodger game and uh, you know a friend of ours has the best seats in the house right behind home plate. I get him a couple of times a year. Wiley gets him like four times a year, by the way. And so and luckily, you know, uh uh, there's four tickets and I have five people. So all five of us could go because the baby is free. So it was Sid, Elvis, Idris, me and Chrissy. And at a certain point in the game, Mike, baseball is not the most exciting sport. Both Elvis and Sydney were asleep right behind the <laughs> dugout, <laughs> like on television, on yep. television asleep. Yep. <laughs> and I was feeding the baby with a bottle because uh, Chrissy had had been holding him for two and a half hours. Baseball games are long, Wiley, as you know. I was like, we I've just heard. you know you're the, <laughs> we just set up the Forest family uh, spot there. You you were just like just took took over that area. It was hilarious watching you. It, it, I was watching you, and I said, "When is Bob going to hold this new baby?" Because the, the missus is holding the baby for a very long time, and Bob just doing this thing and then i i see the baby get passed over to you i'm like wow it's like see there's these chuck there's these seats at every pitch you can yep. see us every single pitch <laughs> the whole game so i get texts what the fuck are you what i got texts from my ex-sister-in-law yep. saying hey if you're gonna take your kids and they're just gonna sleep at the game let them stay yep. home and i'll come <laughs> no, no. Did you did you bring your motor home with you? Did you bring the motor home? No, I did not bring the RV. I didn't go all uh, all in American because baseball, they have RV parking there. You I, know, there's it's fifty bucks, right? It's RV parking. <laughs> I can just see you. What do they? What do they do? They just they just tailgate in the RV at Dodger Stadium. Yeah. Bob, you know, what do, time? What time do you do leave, Wiley? How do you get there? It took us an hour and a half to get well, there. Then we walk in. It, and, and here's the other thing. Soon as I sat down, the first text was from a friend of mine. I'm not going to say who it is. What the fuck? You missed? You come late to the baseball game when you're sitting behind home plate? The very, before I even sat and got everything organized, people are texting. You, you tell them, hey, you explain to them what you can get in that dugout restaurant, like all the food. Everybody comes in those seats late. Oh, Mike, all you would food, love it's it. Like, it's like a, oh, they got prime rib and sushi and Dodger dog. All you can eat. It's unbelievable down there. And I, I was just wondering if you're giving your, your newborn like Cracker Jack flavored milk or something, something, you know, really cool or whatever, right? <laughs> no, but it was, it was, it was crazy. They like Sydney slept prob probably for an hour yeah. and a half during the game. <laughs> she was curled up with the, you know, there's a carrier thing yeah. that you put the baby in, you carry the yeah. baby. We had that balled up as a pillow for her. <laughs> and then Elvis <laughs> used his jacket as a pillow. It was so, I wasn't embarrassed because the people around were laughing. Like, oh my God, the kids are sleeping at the baseball game. <laughs>
you were moving around so much. It was like duck, duck, goose, goose or something. I'm like, can this family sit still? It's like moving around and all this, all this. Yeah, it was, it was, it was making me crazy. So I was losing, uh, you know, but it, it was a good yeah. game. I, I, depending on when, where we're at, how we're, if how up we are, I left a little early and I left the parking lot and I got home. I was home downtown to my place in 11 minutes. 11 minutes. Yeah. But how do you, you, you take an Uber there? No, no, that, no, 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 I don't, I, that's, that's, I, I couldn't imagine getting out of that place during, you know, with Ubers. Oh, like, Uber, no, I drive. Right, right. Yeah. You drive there. So Wiley, Wiley, are you, we didn't Wiley. get into the best parts of what we wanted to talk to you about. I just have my short list. Lou Reed, tell us a Lou Reed story. Okay. So great Lou Reed story is, is his wife, uh, Lori Anderson was playing at. She's great. El Rey. And it was two nights, and it was like, I mean, she was amazing. It was two shows, and it was the early afternoon around like 1 o'clock. I'm standing at the soundboard talking to the production manager. Then I hear the phone ring in the production office, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go see who it is. And I see it's a, it's a New York-like area code. And I thought, oh, did the tour manager, production manager, call the agent to complain? Because usually they don't come to you five feet and tell you there's a problem. They just call the agent and complain to them, and then the agent calls you. And right. I answer the phone, I go production, and I hear a voice say, may I speak to Wiley? And right as he said, may I, I knew it was Lou Reed. And he <laughs> was calling on, on, the, on the production office phone, and he said, hey, I, can you do me a favor? I want to have some flowers sent. My wife is playing the, your venue the next two days. Can you recommend a, a flower shop? This is before Google. This is like early, mid-90s, whatever and 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 um, I go most flowers on Crescent Heights and Melrose, and I'm reaching under my desk trying to find the find the uh, uh, yellow pages, you know, through it, flowers, 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 and I find it. I see the you know the ad in, in yellow pages, like the phone number, and he says, you know, thank you very much. And that was like, that was it. And I was like, you know, crazy. that I have a Nate. That Potter. is so cool. I have a Nate Potker drawing of Laurie Anderson and Lou Reed embracing towards the end of his life. Like he, yeah. he, do you, do you know the story, Mike, of what he did right when he was dying? No, he did like Tai Chi no. and then she held him and then he left the earth. It was yeah. Like they were a really heavy couple. So, uh, there, you know, Laurie Anderson's one of my favorite people. Oh, Superman back to 81. And so we have a Nate Potker, uh, like ink drawing, like a huge ink drawing of them in their last embrace in our living wow. room here. And, um, and they're always a part of our lives. And one of the cool things about Lori Anderson, right at the height of when uh, 9-11 paranoia or something, she went and worked at the McDonald's near their house in, yep. the lower, in, in lower Manhattan. She yep. worked at McDonald's, Lori Anderson. Yeah. Wow, she was she like, was so just, nice and just to have something to do, I guess, or to see yeah. what it felt like to be so mechanical as a human being. She worked literally, you guys. She worked at McDonald's near near, uh, you know, the Twin Towers. That's uh, crazy man. cool. So, crazy so, uh, cool. Like a, a, a couple hours later, the flowers get delivered, right? And and Lude said on the phone, "Don't say anything." And the guy from Most Flowers is delivering it. And it was this humongous flower arrangement. It could barely get it through the door. They had to tilt it down on the side and bring it up, bring it up, and they had to take it upstairs. 
to the dressing room and it's like really narrow, but it was, it was, it almost was hitting the ceiling. Uh, it was so big and he, he'd set two different arrangements, uh, each day. And, and, uh, uh, yeah, it was pretty, pretty was she wild. doing the United States of America? She did a five no, album it, thing called the United States of America. That was so great. I hard to was, listen to in one yeah. sitting actually. Yeah. I mean, that, she that was amazing. That is such a cool story because when there's someone that's that that's that's that cool, and then there's something that makes them even cooler. Who, like uh, I remember hearing one time from that Pamela Debar that like of all the guys she'd slept with, because uh, uh, she was a groupie or whatever, she said Huey Lewis had like the biggest dick. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I saw all of a sudden I was like, man, he's not such a dork after all. And I started liking his music a little more, but. The, uh, <laughs> do you have any Chuck? You probably don't know. The backing band on the first Elvis Costello record is called Clover, I believe. And it's really Huey Lewis in the news. And Huey Lewis is the harmonica player on Pay It Back. Wow. Dude, she had a lot of, That's she had cool. a lot of dudes, man. That, that guy must have been hung like a mule. <laughs> I don't know. But so the reason I say that is, Wiley, don't, do you have any stories that would take somebody that's maybe on the fringe of being somebody we'd really appreciate, but who they are or how they are makes them even better? Because that's a great Lou story. i tell you, one of the nicest people in the fucking world, this is going to blow your mind, Chuck. This is going to, you're going to reevaluate your entire belief system. It's the singer of Limp Biscuit. He's one of the nicest people in the oh, world. Fred Durst. Durst. Oh, yeah. Fred Durst is one of the nicest people I've a, ever that known. Is fucking amazing, man. He will go out of your way for your kids. He's just a great dad. Oh, that's he's that's a great, great. That's... person. And we never talk about music. <laughs> what is this thing with bob forrest doing cocaine with julio iglesias in las vegas were you with us wiley no i just read it la di da or something in the weekly <laughs> <laughs> there were so many people with us that we only you know we were poor at the time we probably only had a gram but uh you have a photo of it you have a photo yeah of there's a photo of it yeah, I lost mine, but Flea and Anthony or or Flea and Louie have. Theirs. So were you in? A, were you backstage? Were you at the hotel? Were you in a car? What the fuck? Well, Flea had bought this car. Let me tell you the whole story. It's a really funny story. And Flea's book doesn't really talk about Chili Pepper World. So no. a lot of the people that were there's some great Chili Pepper stories that aren't like oh drugs or or sex or big rock star stuff. Just fun stuff. So when Flea first made money. He, you know, he didn't, I don't know, he had a bank account, but he didn't really trust anything. So he had, you know, <laughs> he had a check and he put it in his bank account and he wanted to buy a car and he wanted to buy a Mercedes Benz that at the time was like the Mercedes Benz 300, the four door big one. Oh, I know. This. And so he went to this car lot in the Valley near Universal Studios, I think. I think it was in the Valley near Lindy's office. And he said, and he had oh, wow. no shirt on, he had jeans and he had painted tennis shoes. And he went to the Mer Mercedes lot and said, I want to buy that Mercedes, the big, you know, nice one out in front. And they were like, get out of here, kid. And they like told him to leave the lot. And stuff. <laughs> nice. And so he went to the bank and got cash in a briefcase and then went back and said, no, I want to buy that car cash money. <laughs> and so he had just bought it and he wanted to take a road trip. And oh, so wow. 
Wait, wait, wait. Is that the one where he painted every panel a different color? Yeah, he painted it different colors after he Like, it looked like a fucking clown car, but it was brand new Mercedes. It's because when he was driving it, he felt, like, embarrassed of a big rock star car. (laughs) We went surfing in that car, me and him. So we drove right when he got it. The idea was we're all going to go to Las Vegas and see Julio Iglesias. And... And Flea had met Julio Iglesias or something. So it was like me, Nikki B, Pete Weiss, Lil Louie, Flea, John Fashante. Oh, wow. And leaving somebody out, Dick Rude. And we all went. And like the idea was half of us are going to fly and then half of us will drive in the car out there. Then the other half will fly back and the other half will drive back. So I flew out, drove back. And that car, I had never driven a car so fast. You could drive oh. 150 miles an hour, and it felt like it was going <laughs> like 80. Yeah. So we got back. Like, we left after the Julio Glacius after party. Um, we got back in like three and a half hours, me and Pete Weiss, I think. And wow. that was the, yeah, we snorted like one line of Coke with Julio Iglesias. But he, we got to sit. <laughs> okay, wow. We we held court with Julio. He like liked the fact that punk rockers liked them, and he oh. like he knew who the Chili Peppers were. So we got to hang out in his dressing room after his show. It was great. Wow. Mm. He was a charming man. What? Let me tell you. Well, I hope he doesn't get in trouble for this. That's it about him. I mean, that, nothing. There's. <laughs> well, he, he gave us. I mean, I forget. I was so drunk at the time, Chuck. I. I I have to go by what others said. How did the picture happen? The picture was in the dressing room afterwards. We got to go meet him afterwards. You didn't get the straw on the nose. He was telling us how to treat women. It was right when To All the Girls I Love was like the number one song in the world. And he told us what the secrets of women are. He like gave us a bunch of advice and treat a woman, you know, and it was just like, well, what what are the fucking secrets of women? Let yeah. us he know, was <laughs> he was so massive he would sell out like 10 nights at the universal amphitheater like like it was yeah, like he was huge. crazy he, he had was, a learjet i remember yeah. he was leaving in a learjet yeah. and and we were all impressed by that like oh my yeah. god he goes you know i'm i'm having my plane i'm having them hold it because i want to meet with you gentlemen and he was so <laughs> he was he was kicking down the knowledge to the next generation yeah. of musicians he really, but he talked about how to treat women and, and oh. watch your money and all these kind of lessons. Oh, oh, oh according to Julio. kind of like we do here, right? Yeah, it's kind of like <laughs> it's, it's same thing, same shit. But I mean, that that was probably the this like most mind blowing experience. Like the three people I always think like were just like mind blowing to meet is Julio Iglesias, James Brown. And like Jerry Lee Lewis, those are the three that made the biggest impression wow. on me. James Brown in hair curlers, just yeah. talking a thousand miles an hour, like, and you couldn't understand half of it, but you just knew you were around one of the most special humans ever born. You I know, mean, it was just amazing. <laughs> when he was on t- anywhere he went, like he was in LA driving around in a limo with the police escort. It was it was like the police that the, the drive for funerals, driving him around. Like, he always had like this this presence. Like we did him at the palace uh years ago, and he showed up and he's so little, but all of his staff and people, but it, it was so crazy when you just pull up and all these motorcades are pulling up. It's like it's it, it was always very mind-boggling. 
Yeah, you did Jerry Lee Lewis. You've done Jerry Lee Lewis a lot of times, right? We did him. We did him uh, at the Ace, and then we did him at at Palomino uh, at Stagecoach. And he, you know, hang out with him. Well, here's the great here's a great story. So we, you know, we dove all that. He comes in, advance, he advance all the production and the and the instruments with his his guitar player. Then he has his wife and a couple of people are with him. So he shows up and. You know, everything's great. So I get a call on my phone that there's a couple guests that need to get from the artist compound over to the stage to see him play. I'm like, I ask who, and they say it's Tom Jones and Priscilla Presley. So <laughs> I go, and I, I PJ, I, PJ got a hold of me. That is some random fame right there. <laughs> okay. Well, it, it, so great, fine. So they want to come down, you know, in a van or a golf uh-huh. cart, where, where where they want to stand. They probably want to be go to the mixed position. So I I, I went and got I went and got uh, my office chair, my rolling office chair, and my production assistant's rolling office chair. I'm like, sorry, I got to take that and give him a plastic chair. Sit in this. I go put the two rolling uh, chairs up at the front of the house at the mixed position, like nicer cushioning, nicer something better than the, than it was white Samsonite chairs. And they show up and they decided they just wanted to get brought in by a golf cart from the compound. So they're sitting in the back, in the back of a golf cart. So PJ's driving. Is there passing people out? People are looking over like, no way, no way. Like <laughs> everybody was recognized them. Like people were like, no way. So they show up and everybody that was, you know, backstage working and stuff. All these people are like walking by and staring like, no, there's no way this could be right. And so in the dressing room is, Tom Jones, Priscilla Presley hanging out with, you know, Jerry Lewis and, and uh, they're hanging out. How did Jerry up. Lee Lewis, how did Jerry Lee Lewis and Priscilla, Priscilla Presley get along? They, uh, I mean, they must have met, she's known him since she was 13 years old. Yeah. That's crazy. You know the story, right, Chuck? Yeah, old yeah, enough yeah. to marry. Well, but Elvis was seeing her, <laughs> but he was just smarter about things. And then and Jen, Jerry Lee marries the girl and he gets he gets, you know, banned from everywhere in the world. And they were both doing the same thing. Yeah, but by far, by far, all the shows that I've ever done in the world, that was probably the the top of the special guests coming in. When Tom Jones is the third person I'm interested in the story, can you like that? So he liked, he liked, he liked it so much being in the, in the tent hanging out. He played last, last Coachella. He played on my stage. He liked it so much. So we take him to the mix position. What did he do? He did. What did he do? The Elvis Presley remix song. Oh, that's a great song. <laughs> so that is a great song. So they decided to, you know, they went and sat at the mix position, and I, I, I gave him, I showed him the chairs, and they, and they ended up sitting, and they moved on top of a platform which is behind the mix position for an LD, but there wasn't a touring LD at that spot. So they ended up kind of raised. They decided they wanted to sit in these Samsonite chairs. And people were just walking by, like staring. And there's no way. And people were trying to sneak a photo, like you know, holding like camera to their sides, like you I know, trying to do a right selfie. Says, Can I get a picture? So you, you know, because <laughs> that's like it's just so random. I wonder if yeah. they were together. Did you get the sense they were together? I, I don't know, but you know, he he is so damn cool that she is absolutely beautiful. I mean, I was just like, I was like, <laughs> he's also. I was, I go, she. I go, she was married to Elvis Presley. You know, it's like, it was, uh, you know, but it, it was, uh, it, it was really cool. It was, you know, it's always nice when, uh, when, uh, uh, you know, 
cool it's cool weird. Elvis show. Presley doesn't even seem like a human being he seems like yeah. a Greek god or something that yeah, no yeah. one's ever known and then you see his wife and his grandkids and his kids and like it's just like Elvis hey, Presley was I, a real person I had a question about about something for I don't know if you guys know the answer but do they show the Elvis death toilet in the tour when they take Disgrace no. Land? I was there a year Bob well, Bob Dylan, Al Cooper told me Dylan gets him up on the on the Jesus tour. Dylan, you know, Dylan, like Al Cooper is one of Dylan's only real friends. And he calls yeah. him and says, let's go on the tour. So Al Cooper and Bob Dylan and a couple of people, when they were doing the Christian tour and playing Memphis, they went and got a private tour of Graceland. And Al said, uh, he said, uh, Bob Dylan said to the tour guide, you know, they were they were getting the Okie Doke tour. And Dylan said, uh, can it, is it all right to see the bedroom? And, uh, and then they, I guess they, I guess they uh, got special permission from whoever to go upstairs to the bedroom. And then they were standing in the bedroom with Al and this tour guide and, and Bob Dylan. And Bob Dylan says, is that the bathroom? <laughs> and uh, the lady says, uh, yeah. And he goes, do you mind? <laughs> he goes, he, swear to God, Al no. Cooper told me this story. Bob Dylan goes in the bathroom and shuts the door and is in there for like 15 minutes. Wow. <laughs> oh, no. and, and, they're, and Al's trying to cover for him, like talking to the lady, the tour guide, like, you know, I don't know. He's Bob Dylan, you know, yeah. kind of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, Bob Dylan like, like took Went a poop? into the bathroom where Elvis died and shut the door and was in there by himself for like 15 minutes. I, I think he... he I think he probably pooped to beat the toilet that Elvis couldn't beat. <laughs> no, oh he probably god. just sat down. <laughs> oh my it. god! <laughs> I would have gone in I, there and beat the toilet. That's the greatest <laughs> story I've ever heard, man. It is a really good one. Al Cooper's <laughs> got a good bunch. Al Cooper is the musical Wiley. Is there a celebrity? Wait, is there a celebrity you haven't met, Wiley? I mean, BTS is the biggest celebrities in the world right Wait, now. Wait, Bob, do you remember when we went up to Al Cooper's house in Laurel Canyon? On, uh, yeah. In, you? in Barham. He lived in, in Barham. Bar oh, in Barham. Yeah, okay. It was up on the on the, on the the north side. Yeah. Right. He moved the day of the Northridge earthquake. He said, no way. I'm never living here. Moved but you to and I in Al Cooper's house and, uh, and, and there was a B3 in there. Yeah, no, I wow. recorded with him. I recorded and wrote songs with him. Wiley, if you could you text one of the bts guys right now if you wanted to um i mean he, uh pro probably so i mean why, why <laughs> what are you gonna say hey what's up what's up buddy but here's here's a good here's a good bts story and then so we're doing bts in at city field in the met stadium a couple years ago big big stadium show we had we had to go for a walkthrough. I got there early. We always when we go through walkthroughs and tech scouts, we all go together. So we're all together. We're not waiting on someone who's lost or a car or whatever. Somebody's five minutes away. And I got there early because I had to fly out that night and I wanted to go to Cats and get some matzo ball soup. So I went to there get my matzo ball soup fixed. Get to City Field. Get to City Field early. We're there because I'm taking care of the parking lot part of it, which is called the BTS experience where all the kids come in, they buy merch, their step and repeats, all the crazy stuff that I was doing. So I'm walking, I'm on, I walk on the field. Well, first I go, I go check in. They write my name, cross it out. They give me a sticker. They're giving me a really dirty look. I'm like, whatever, man. I go in, I'm on the field. I'm with Kobe. 
He's running around. He goes to the mound. He does what you think he does, right? A little, you know, little, uh, uh, little, uh, uh, you know, tiny little poop, a little tiny, tiny, shirt, tiny, you know, little, tiny, and it's biodegradable, right? And I see this guy come out. Of, <laughs> I see this guy come out of an elevator, and he's coming towards like a suit guy, like an a suit older guy. He comes up to me, and he goes, "You have a lot of nerve to wear that hat in my building." And I'm thinking, myself, your hat, yeah. So I'm looking, <laughs> I'm looking up, I'm trying to see what hat I have. Uh, there's no reflection, nowhere I can like, you know, and you can kind of look or see. I'm like, what hat do I have on? Because I have a, two boxes. I have my suitcase that have hats. I have like, I leave town with 20, 20 baseball hats, right? You know, and, and like, he comes over to me and it was the owner. The owner was, was Fred Wilpin. He's, he's, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm he, like, just, he just sold them. Yeah, I'm just chatting <laughs> with him. Yeah. And, and, you know, he was just... I was like, and I was just like, ugh. And, you know, I got a, a little call later on since he can't wear a Dodgers hat in the building. You just like, I'm like, sorry, but that's kind of fascist. Yeah, we oh, sat no. and chatted a bunch. Uh, and, uh, you know, we talked a little bit of baseball and, and asked, asked me, you know, like what I thought of the team. And, you know, it was, it was interesting. You know what uh, he thought of the team? He sold it to Steve Cohen. That's what he thought of the team. <laughs> right, he just sold, just sold it this last summer. But but so everybody in the New York office, they're like laughing, like only only could happen to you. It's like it's like okay, uh, let's you know. go way way back in your memory. Yeah. One of the greatest concerts I ever saw was mm -hmm. John Cale at Fender's Ballroom. Wow! Did, did you work that show? Oh, that was that was back in the in the eighties. Yeah, when he had the mask, the hockey mask or whatever. Yeah, he was, he was like Jason from Friday the 13th. Yeah, Friday yeah. The 13th. Mind blowing. And that's the first time I heard Hallelujah, the song Hallelujah. I'd never heard it by uh, uh, Leonard Cohen. I'd never heard it. What That would have been 86. When was Hallelujah written? Well, uh, we did at the, at the American Legion Hall, which is on Highland, just next to the Hollywood Bowl. We did shows back in the 90s. We did Jeff Buckley at there the last time i saw him before he you know he passed away he you know he went for a swim and he, you know everybody knows but but he sings a song hallelujah and it's amazing and he sung it at soundcheck but he didn't sing it during the show he didn't sing it during the show Jeff no Buckley? he sung it he sung only at soundcheck that's the first thing that pops up when you google hallelujah song yep is jeff buckley's youtube version of it Yep, that's crazy that there's not a Leonard Cohen. But I'm trying to so see. So there was a. It was written in eighty. It was written in eighty three. So when did John Cale did it right away when it came out? Right. It, it was it was amazing. Imagine you've never heard the song Hallelujah, Chuck. It it doesn't oh, exist, that's a, that's and you're standing in front of a crazy guy wearing a hockey mask. He sits down at the piano. He sits down at the piano and he plays that song. It was mind blowing. <laughs> and I you know it was he, a real piano. I thought he wrote piano. it. I thought John oh. Cale wrote it. <clears throat> <laughs> so crazy. But so you didn't work Fender's Ballroom, Wiley? When did you start? I would wrote it for some shows, but a lot of those shows were way early 80s, mid 80s. It was like not till late 80s, 90s. Uh, uh, but I'm trying to think the one Fender ballroom. I mean, you know, talking about Fenders, I rem re remind me, the Hickles played there. They opened up. I don't know who they opened up for down there. And we all ended up at Smitty's house in Long Beach for the after party. We're all absolutely high on mushrooms. We jukebox from the Hickles 
always brought like five pounds of mushrooms with them from <laughs> Texas, right? Yeah. And we, I remember being a spinning all night long. And, and I remember I, I went into his like walk-in closet in his bedroom and he had all these balloons, all these open balloons that were, you know, that, had, you know, obviously, you know, what's in the balloon, right? Like 20 right. or 30, just all, you know, the tops pulled up already, re, already in use. So I'm scraping all the dust <laughs> out of each one, right? To try to I'm, come down from the mushrooms? Yeah, I'm trying to come down from the mushrooms, right? And, and, <laughs> and because, and I just do it, I'm like, I was like, oh my, and I, I got so high because it was like all these different potencies or whatever the hell it was, but they were all, you know, in Smitty's uh, uh, walk-in closet in his house, and that's when he that, lived. He lived down the house, Wiley. Yeah. That was the house, Riley, where, where we got in, where me and Smitty, uh, where me and Steve-O got in the gunfight. I was told that story yeah. before. Yeah, it's Smitty. Smitty worked for the city. He was like, he was like guy. This like a, he got up on those tree trimmers and cut all the power lines. No, he was trees. a trash man. What a trash man! I thought he was a tree cutter. Like no, he, was he was a trash man. Oh, I thought he was one of those cherry pick. The mythology of rock and roll. But here's the thing about <laughs> rock and roll. Here's the, here's the thing about rock and roll. People like Smitty, Lil Lou, Wiley, Paul T, Rick Van Satin, the three of us, we're free to live in this world and thrive in this world and this beautiful world of rock and roll, right? It, it was a freedom that, that wasn't allotted to you in any other world. People yeah. like us were not, not employable. And nowadays it's all like corporate and whatever. And I, I but I just think <laughs> about how, how it was a magnet for all these kind of people that were really free thinkers and outside the box thinkers and rebels and outlaws. And that's what was great about rock and roll. And it really yeah. is missing. You've got to admit that. It's missing. I got to say something that was really funny. I was watching this thing on uh, Netflix. It's called pop or something. And it, they were talking to T-Pain and he was talking about how he was on a, a plane one time and that, um, what's his name? Oh man, I can't remember no. his name. No. Oh my, my gosh. Kobe's got to go outside. He's got to make a poopy there, right now. No, he doesn't. He's good. Come here. Come here. There, there was an ex, there was a, there was a famous singer on the, on the plane no. with him who, who said, man, you ruined music. <laughs> you just destroyed music by using the auto tune the way he did by turning it down to zero. It was Usher. And he goes, now people that can't sing can sing. And then they interviewed all these uh, executives who were like, now we didn't need singers. We just needed people that looked right. And it's it was even more, it, it but didn't in the change beginning, the culture in the beginning of punk rock, it, the beginning of punk rock, it was, I guess there was an entrepreneurial thing to hip hop that, that is unique and whatever. But I'm just talking about the community that Wiley grew up in from like a very early age, like 12, 13, 14. So did Beck. I think you and Beck are probably about the same age, Wiley, right? Because I remember Beck was like 13 and coming to Raji's. Yeah, so, yeah. Then he, you know, he did a show at the Roxy. He opened up for somebody. I can't remember who it was. And he was an opening act. And, and nobody knew how he did this stuff, stuff, the, the stuff in, but he had like two bags of leaves and a leaf blower and his blue leaves and stuff all over the stage and the Roxy. <laughs> I bet you, I bet you, I bet you the Roxy people are happy about that. Oh, the, the manager, the, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, you know, but yeah, he's, uh, he's great. We, but he's, when you think about it, the idea that, that you could just 
rent out Fender's ballroom and, or you could like, I, I used to, before I was in a band, I used to do shows. Mike Mart, I did yeah. a show. He got one of my club's clothes called the Sunday club at a Chinese restaurant on Hollywood <laughs> Boulevard. Checks in the Horseheads played ruined oh, it. The oh. lady who owned the restaurant was like, you cannot do this here. You cannot do this here. <laughs> yeah. Said, what are they doing? You cannot do this here. What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? What is he doing? Like pointing at Smog. I think Smog is just laying on a table with his bass on top of him like he was dead almost. There was no bass playing going on. It, this is at four o'clock in the afternoon on a Sunday. That's how fucked up Texan the Orthids were. Well, why you, can't you have some sort of you have some sort of story about San Francisco at the farm that I kind okay. of don't remember. So it the bill was I'm Texan the Horseheads, um, the abandoned, the mentors, and uh, did I say flipper? <laughs> it was like uh, flipper. It was flipper. At, yeah, it was at the farm. Is it called a farm? And it was a great place in San Francisco. And I think Dave Kaplan was involved with a booking that he's a young a young kid now he's an agent a uh, big agent but uh and i don't remember big, it was a big kwanza hut like one of those yeah. round half round thingies right it, and it yeah was, and it was a farm there was like an organic no there were chickens running around uh, backstage it's like oh wow there's chickens walking around I'm like this, this is place cool. was fucking great in bro. san francisco it's yeah. called the farm yeah and i had driven up I drove up with Dream. I don't know if people remember Dream. He used to yeah, work, and he he has a, the best uh, uh, circle jerks tattoo on his arm, like by far the best one, right? And, and I don't know who did it, it was like Bob Roberts or who, uh, Mahoney or whatever, but but <laughs> but um um that was that was crazy. We had to take El Duce and drive with him, and he is <laughs> just. We were taking the the next day. We're up there. We're taking the bus somewhere. Uh, and, and El Duce passes out in the bus. It was really hard to get him um, um, up and walk and get him. You couldn't carry him. It was just, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a, you know, it's so funny. Like we all, well, the three of us know El Duce, Eldon, his name was. I'm one of the people Hulk. that have been to his house, met his mom. Yeah. Um, Eldon, yeah. Eldon, um, he just loved to say outrageous stuff. So fast forward, like, Chrissy, my wife, and all her friends and everybody that, from that generation, they really believe that he killed Kurt Cobain because right. it's in that movie. Uh, and I was like, uh, no, uh, no, uh, no. Uh, you got to understand, El Duce would say anything for like a six-pack of beer and a little attention. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> like, but yeah, there is a yeah. whole generation of people that believe that movie, that, that yeah. horrible Kurt and Courtney yeah. movie. It's it just like and that is when mythology and lies and bullshit just get embedded into the psyches of a generation. It's how powerful media is. <laughs> I, I wouldn't trust him to kill somebody. Well, I think, oh, he, my I God, you guys. Look at done. this. Look, look outside. Look at my house right now. Is that a bear? That is a bear outside. That my is window. Damn. Oh, my God. That's look huge. At that, look at that Dude. guy. Hang that on. He's hungry. Let me see. I, he looks hungry. Everybody at home, that bear is probably 500 pounds. Sid, oh. that bear is big, right? So, so El Duce, you know that I was arrested twice with him by the Hollywood uh, uh, LAPD. The what first time, the first time, me and El Duce, and you'll remember Tony. You guys P. keep, you guys keep talking. I got to go deal with the bear and the family right now. Keep talking. I'll tell you. I'll come <laughs> back and tell you what happened. 
Well, Th- that may be the last sign off from Bob Forrest. Oh, no, that <laughs> we're going to be part three. So Bob but- is headed outside to deal with a bear. I mean, what the fuck? Bob's got to be, uh, be on this. When I talk about uh, going to jail with El Duce and having my mom come bail us out. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we can. Yeah, we can hold on that. Now, Especially now, since Wiley, there's not a lot go, you can do with the bear except run them off. Did you guys go to Wilcox, the Wilcox show? Well, we went to, we went to uh, Wilcox Hotel, yeah, right on Wilcox. Yeah. That place was awesome, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. The third time I got arrested, they go... They go, no photo. We don't need your photo or your, or your fingerprints. They're on file. Oh, my God, you guys. Look at this. This is I, right outside my window. Oh, my God. Look at him. <laughs> Holy shit. Oh hey, dude. Six feet away. Great day of the morning. He's <laughs> going over by the camper. Bye-bye, man. Holy God. Where do you? Right, I'm gonna get... Oh, look, it's running this way. Look at it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. There he goes. Oh, he got scared just, off. Whoa, just, whoa. It's running. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, gotta I would just. just oh my God. This is insane, you guys. Continue the podcast. I uh, just <laughs> get some uh, 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 firecrackers and, and uh, just light them off. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. They don't like that. That's, that's pretty big for, for that for thing was huge. California. Where are those coming from? He, where he lives, there's a ton of mountain around there out in Claremont. There's he, there's a lot of mountain area. Can you tell if it's tagged or not? If they've tagged them? Pro- I don't I don't know. I don't know that they tag them, but if they do that stuff that, that they probably are. I've been down there when he's yelled at me or he's gone, What are you doing parking up here? Because there's like parking down below. And I said there was a fucking bear down there. So by you know by the big I see cannon. bears in Alaska all the time. <laughs> That's a bigger bear. Wiley, you have you have a Marlon Brando story? Oh yeah. Oh shit. We gotta yeah, know, a, we gotta hear the Marlon Brando story. I'm it's sorry. It's a great story. So it's just I mean, it's part of my growing up and you know, and you know you know, we used to go to his house and you know, I remember, you know, he you mean your mom your family was friends with Marlon Brando? Yeah, my mom. My mom knew a lot of people. People where I grew up in Hollywood, when my mom, my mom was this, this pregnant, little pregnant lady who ended up having twins two weeks before she gave birth. Uh, she thought she was having one kid and all of how that all worked. But it, in those days, everybody knew everybody. And she knew people. She used to work at a, at a club called the Ash Grove. It's a famous place where people used yeah. to play. And uh, You know, uh, Dave Alvin has an album called the Ash Grove. Yes. We talk, we, he put something on his Facebook talked about it and I commented about it. He, he does this. He talks. So when he's on the road, it's so great to read his postings on Facebook. They're it so is. amazing. He's a great writer. I mean, it, you do. It's like everything is, is just a song. He talks about it, you know, and yep. what a warrior to go on the road and travel by car, by van. And play so all these what, little honky, did Marlon Brand, you, you would go over to Marlon Brando's and just hang out. Like how yeah. old were you? Probably nine or ten, seven, eight, nine. But uh, I went there probably through seven, through seven years to ten years, probably. And did when did he talk? When he talked, did he just? Yeah, talk he was. Like- we would we would a couple times when he was a, a couple several times he was there, but a lot of times he wasn't. And so I remember, um, um, he he had cable TV, which we didn't have cable TV at my house. We had a black and white TV that barely was there because my dad right. would always. Everything's okay now. My dad would always uh, 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 take it and hawk it, but he had cable. So we'd go to, we loved going to his house to eat and watch cable. We'd watch the channel and 
But so and, did his voice? Did his voice sound like what he sounds like, like in the like in the Godfather and in Apocalypse? Just a regular person, you know. But I'm back now, you guys. Yeah. Okay, Holy and then what's moly. the thing about Orson Welles? You, you, you okay. Orson Welles lived lived on Stanley and Hollywood Boulevard, two yeah, houses right by up, Weiss, right by Pete Weiss's yeah. house in a red brick house, a red brick house, and and. He, that's the house he died in, and it was just in the Scott Morrow. We we're talking about Scott Morrow the last podcast. He just lived a few doors down in Hollywood. Well, Orson, I became friends with his his butler, which is a, guy, a kid named Sasha, who we always thought was his son because he looked like Orson a lot. Well, we would go there and hang out, and and and, and, and his butler had the upstairs attic, which is which is retrofitted into this huge like it looked like almost like when you go to one of those hotels and you have their jacuzzi in the living room and. All very nice. There was a there was a toilet and a bidet, and it's really fan. It was like very modern compared to the house downstairs. And you know, you would see him, and and, and you know, but he he was prescribed some good good stuff. I mean, I I started. <laughs> he was prescribed Tylenol, Valium, and Codeine, and I I, I you know that was just you know Orson Welles. Orson Welles is on Tylenol. Tylenol. Yeah. are nuts. I I I like. But, you know, he'd gone to the same doctor I'd gone to. I went to this doctor named Dr. Daly, which is right on DeLongpre and Vine Street. Same is, name. Yeah. Well, I think it was D-A-L-Y. Maybe no, no relations. No. Uh, and then, you know, we would go and you go to see him and he would give you whatever you wanted. Like, he's, oh, I can't sleep. My so back was, hurts. Orson well, was Orson Welles on a bunch of stuff? No, I don't think he, he was described it, but I don't think he was, he was uh, ever taking, who, if he was ever taking her or not, but, but, you know, it was always fun to, uh, to partake on the extras, you know, and, and, you know, he always had, he had a huge box or humidor full of these Cuban cigars. And those right. are really good. And, and I remember, and, uh, I remember seeing him, he would be the, uh, it was on the side street of Stanley above Hollywood Boulevard and he would be walking out to his car. Sometimes, the yep. guy was as big as a mountain. He was, oh and he he had a big suit on, like suit coat that was literally yeah. five feet wide. And you, <laughs> in those days, you you knew who he was, but the, obviously the when you look at people nowadays, when you have when you have social media and your finger on your phone, you know it's a lot of times all that stuff is mysterious. Like you, you saw some of the movies, you knew who he was, um, um, you know, and 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 uh, he was, uh, you know, he had. I remember he had in the garage he had cases of that Paul Madison wine. That he used to do the commercials for. Commercials for oh, yeah, yeah. Amazon. Yeah, whatever Almost that line was, we just said well, it was great. We just stay up. You just no stay in for three it's days. Time. Never before it's time or something was. No one sold before. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I did see his last. He went. He was on Murph Griffin, and he was a special guest. And he did some tricks, and they talked for as long as Murph Griffin could talk. And in that night, Orson went home. And he went to sleep and he passed away. So you can look on what a way to go. That's a way to go. I was there at, at, at that's, you know, hanging out in one of the seats, but, uh, you know, Merv Griffin, what a trip he was like, you know, that's, you know, you know, how, you know, how amazing some of the uh, people that were on his show is, you know, John Lennon. Deal. John yeah. Lennon yeah, that was right on Vine street. Now it's a stupid bed, bath and beyond right on Vine. And, and, what's, the, and, what's, the, and what's the, <laughs> how about that? How about that? 
the studio where John Lennon and Yoko Ono did Merv Griffin is now a Bed Bath and Beyond. Yep. <laughs> that 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 Wiley that progress. That, we are talking about an end of an era of Hollywood. I moved yeah. to Los Angeles in 1981. So in 81, there was still remnants of old 50s Hollywood. Vine Street, between oh. Hollywood and Sunset. The Brown Derby, that, all that, that stuff. Yeah, the Brown Derby was still there. That old hotel that was almost up to Hollywood Boulevard, That a lot of old movie stars, that was like a retirement hotel. And, and there was a lot of old movie stars you'd just see walking down Hollywood Boulevard. It was crazy. And that's Man. what the song, you can see the stars when you walk down Hollywood Boulevard. Yep. Everybody thinks now you're just looking at the ground. No, they lived in this weird old folk, not old folks home. Oh. What was it, Wiley? It's like a tan brick building on the west side of Vine, just below Hollywood Boulevard. It was like a, it was like a retirement. Are you talking about the Taft building where you were? You had your no, south, years ago. across from the Taft. And and down a little bit before that theater, there's a hotel there, and and you used to see like, you oh, know, because it tomato was above Rogers, so it was the Hastings, right? Was that the one above Rogers? No, no, around on Vine Street, the Knickerbocker. So Knickerbocker. No, up, no, up it didn't have left. a famous <laughs> name. It didn't have <laughs> a famous name. But I'm telling you that that Tomato De Plenty knew every movie star, and we would yeah. see people, and he would say, "That's so and so." He was in the, you know, Farewell to Arms with Frederick March and like, yeah. <laughs> like wow. all these old movie stars. And so there was that. And then there was also um, Alice Cooper was making records. I remember driving around and seeing Alice Cooper and at uh, that recording studio on Fairfax that Bowie did. Bowie did Station to Station there, I think. Uh, what was in it? Cherokee, right? On Fairfax. Yeah, Cher well, Fred, yeah, yeah uh, the same studio X X did the record record Cherokee right on uh, just south of Santa Monica on Fairfax. On Fairfax, across, right? No, Bowie, Bowie recorded there. How about how about John Lennon? There's a studio that you could just walk up to, and, and the musicians would be in the parking lot next to it. John Lennon, Elton John, Alice Cooper, Ringo Starr all recording at this recording studio that was right there on Fairfax. Crazy. And, 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 and now that, that world, I mean, I don't know that they make people like David Bowie anymore. Is there going to be somebody like David Bowie ever again? Um, or Grace Jones? No. Oh, oh wow. We did her. Jones. We did Grace Jones. Two shows at the palace it was 96 New Year's Eve. It was an early show, late show. And, I did the show and there's all the all this stuff. I had to you know, meet her at the airport. Da, 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 da. This time that or at that time it was great because you could walk up to the gate and meet your artist to come in, you know. You're high, you know, you know who they are. Went to the gate, met her, she was with their boyfriend, and they showed up. They got in the we had to get it was a stretch limo. Uh, I got in the front seat, took them to the they were staying, but that round hotel, it keeps it keeps changing names up on Sunset Boulevard. It was called the St. James Room. Is you bend as it curves that curves around yeah, yeah. strip by the Saint right James at, at King's Road. Yeah, it's this round hotel. It's the only thing that on Sunset that has anything from the past. All everything else is you know mirrored windows and skyscrapers. And she was staying there. And then the next day were the shows. She came in the sound check. Um, and we built we built this staircase. We wanted to do. There was a video that 
she did, and I can't remember the name of it, but we built this 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 kind of retrofitted a, a staircase that was on the stage and went straight up into the up into the rig, right? So when she would when the curtain opened, we had all this dry ice and smoke, and her come down the you see the staircase lit up, and it was like slowly but surely you see her come down the stairs and come out of the smoke and out of the out of the all the cry and all that. You're and bringing like, me back, yeah. That, and she's that doing this up. dance. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know. Yeah. Uh, it was a dry ice in a, in a smoke machine and she was all, everything was just one all in that. So she sung to that. So the did show. you work at the, did you work at the palace a lot? Cause I'll tell you some great shows at the palace lone justice when they yeah. were like before anybody knew about them, but they were becoming a headliner. Yep. They opened with heaven by talking heads. It was fucking oh, wow. amazing. Maria McKee singing heaven by yeah. talking heads. Yeah, I'll never justice. forget it. One justice opened up for the unforgettable fire, unforgettable fire tour. You too at Sports Arena, I think that album. Lone Justice is the opening. Yeah, they were a hot band. Ben, they were great. Were you there when Tex and the Horses played? Were you working? Well, we everybody played there, Mike. But the magical moments of rock and roll. Hey, Ice Cube when he quit NWA, he goes to New York. He makes a record with Hank Shockley and the Public Enemy guys. He comes his first day back in L.A. He plays the Palace and he plays only his first album, America's Most Wanted. It opens the curtain because Wiley, yeah, they, the idea that there's a curtain, there's not even curtains anymore to concerts. Oh. So the curtain oh. opens. There's an electric chair. Ice Cube is sitting in it and they do the intro to the album. You got anything to say? And he goes, yeah, I got something to say. Fuck all y'all. And the, and the electric chair goes uh, goes and, and he jumps out of it and just started rapping like you'd never seen before. Yep. It was, were you there at that? Were you working that? Yes. Ice yeah, Cube at the Palace? It was yeah. one of the most amazing things ever. Then when James Chance, James White, James Contortion was living in LA and part of the Thelonious Monster world, he said, hey, my, my friend Ornette is playing. Do you want to go? And I, there's only one person named Ornette that James White is going to be friends with. And I was like, yes, I want to go. And so I picked James up. He was living at a motel on Highland above Franklin. I pick him up. He goes, hey, do you want to try methadone? <laughs> he goes, because I got a bunch of take homes. And so he gives me like half a bottle of that pink methadone. I drink it. I drive to the palace. We're sitting there at a table in the back by the by the by the guest list door that goes out into the alley. And we're sitting there and Ornette Coleman comes on with the double bass and double drums and James Blood Omer and Donardo, his son. It's just the most amazing thing. And I can't lift my head up. I just leaning oh, on the table just from like, I guess like probably 50 milligrams of methadone. I had never taken. It. I was like 86. I was so fucked up all night. And to think that nowadays little 19 year old kids, Chuck, just take, I don't know, the equivalent of, of that in Suboxone and the, to wake up. It's amazing yeah. how strong the narcotics are that we take for granted now. Yeah, my, my dad, he was on methadone maintenance for about 38 years until he died. Oh my God. So oh my God. here's a great story. Okay. So, so okay. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm in kindergarten and I'm like five years old. It was like the first couple of weeks of kindergarten at garden street school. Oh God. And they had the nurse in, in, in the, uh, 
in the classroom, answer questions of people raising their hands. And, you know, it's a, in those days, you get your measles shots and all that stuff, your, your whatever the flu shots from the with nurse. With a gun. You'd get yeah. a measles shot with a gun. And so then, yep. so then, so the nurse had said, you know, said, hey, I don't know the exact words. She said, hey, what do you do when you go to a doctor? And I raised my hand and she goes, what? I go to get methadone. I said methadone, <laughs> not methadone, right? So I, my mom gets called to school. She shows up and she's trying to, and, her, and, the, and the principal, he this crazy principal. His name is Mr. Voice. I'll never forget him. And we're asking my mom, like, how does your son know about methadone? My mom had to explain, well, when he sees his father, which is very rare, he picks the kids up and takes them to La Cienega Park, which is La Cienega, excuse me, not La Cienega, uh, uh, down at West Hollywood, San Vicente and Santa Monica. There used to be like, the, the pool was oh, yeah. there and there was a park and there was swings and jungle, jungle, monkey bars and jungle gyms. And there was a place where you go, get your, get your methadone. You take your, and he had a jar with his urine sample. You take that in, you get his methadone <laughs> dose. He'd slug it down, but he would give him his backup. And then my dad would grab us and take us to get pizza and go to Orange Julius on the way back to the house and drop us off. We wouldn't see him for months. And so they were, they were absolutely mortified that I knew the word methadone when I was five years old. When Elijah was in second or third grade, <clears throat> his mom called me and said, you have to come down here and talk to the school. And I was like, it was in Anaheim. And I was like, what, what's going on? She goes, you need to come down here by the end of the day. And so I went to Elijah's school. He was, I think he was in like third grade. Whenever you do your autobiography, when is that? Like third grade? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, you tell, you tell the class, you know, in a short couple paragraphs, your life. So <laughs> I go into the vice principal's office. I said, yeah, I'm Mr. Forrest. I'm Elijah Sad. And he goes, uh, he goes, uh, and he stands up and he shuts the door and he goes, I want you to read something. And he hands me <laughs> Elijah's uh, autobiography, right? Oh, and wow. It's, uh, the first, it starts off with, my mom is a registered nurse. She works in a hospital. My dad is a drug addict musician who lives in Hollywood. <laughs> is that heartbreaking or what? That's just the truth. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but how sad. Listen to the Listen to the callousness of Mike Mart right wow. there. Wow. Well, yeah. That but reading that is fucking harsh. And he said wow. uh, and I said so what's the deal? And he said yeah. it's good to meet you. I just wanted you to see where your son is at. It was no there was nothing punitive. There was nothing they he just that they wanted me to read that. Right. And it was yeah. a profound it did have a profound effect on me. I got sober wow. probably two years after that, a year and a half after. And that that culmination. So people always ask me, Chuck, like, what did you really get? What made you get sober? It wasn't one thing. It was like 500 things. And right. that was one of them. And that vice principal insisting that I come down and all he wanted me to do was read that paragraph mm -hmm. and fucking live with who you are. Oh, Jesus. This is now, who you and, are. And this here's is how the you're thing. affecting your Here's kid. the thing. We don't do that to people anymore, Chuck, because that might no. hurt their feelings. <laughs> yeah. Feelings are right? important. Yeah. It, when we when we sit down and we have clinical and people go, oh, my God, these, this, these people are going to lose their baby. And I say, 
it's good that they lose their baby. They're drug addicts. They've been in 20 treatment centers in the last two years. They can't stay sober. They keep dragging this baby in and out of good houses. Either the kid needs to go live with their parents or it needs to go up toward an adoptive loving foster home. These people are not getting their shit together. But even in treatment, there are people that go, oh, no, they need their babies back. Majority, and, majority of the people that work in treatment say that. And it's just like, you got to be kidding me. This is what it does to kids. I did it to mine. You guys, you did it to yours. Mike did it so, to his. So what I Mike did sick. not do it to his. Oh, Mike, he Mark didn't, did not did do it to his. He didn't yeah, have see, now you hurt Mike's feelings. You hurt my feelings, Chuck. Oh, <laughs> uh, now, now I remember what I was going to say, Bob. When I was like six years old, we went on a field trip to the West Hollywood Sheriff Station, a bunch of us kids in oh kindergarten. God. And they'd take you, you know, around the cop cars and run the sirens and, you know, look at the bikes. <laughs> they take like you. Fun. They walked us all into one of the jail cells and they pulled it shut. And they say, and we're all like, <laughs> holy crap. And they said, you know, th we, this is for bad people, right? They open it up, let us out. Everybody's walking by these display cases that have these different objects in them. All the kids just walk by. They don't even look. I come by and I'm looking, looking, staring, looking. They're all pictures of rigs, a balloon, a joint, a pill. And I'm, <laughs> I'm just sitting there like this. The only kid out of like 20 kids, saucer eyes, just staring at a little bit, knowing exactly <laughs> what all this shit is. And the cop, oh, no. the cop standing there looked at me and said, do you know what this you know what this stuff is don't you he goes this this is bad this is like for bad people this is like you know, i was just like you know i just like walk out i remember seeing like a fucking uh quaalude uh, a joint uh, you know all this stuff let me just say police no longer can say they're they are there are bad people anymore <laughs> you, you know what i mean so so as we and and i'm i swear to god i think it's hopeless i think it's over I think our society is game, set, match. You now have what you said, Chuck, a whole generation of grandparents raising their grandchildren that are going to end up the same way that Wiley and I did, that, that Elijah did, that your kids have, and it's never going to end. And the way that it ended for me was people holding me accountable, and we don't hold addicts accountable anymore. So how the fuck are they ever going to get sober? And but so I believe it's harming our addiction community. Mm -hmm. So I, I try to tell the truth. Do I say it in a mean way? No, but I say, dude, like you can't even, here's something I said to an addict a week or a week and a half ago. He was getting all like, you know, I don't need this and blah, blah, blah. And he's living in sober living for free. And I said, dude, you can't even fucking feed yourself. You can't even feed yourself. And you're telling me what you need. When you can feed yourself, then you won't, you won't have to have conditions put upon your living situation. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. No. I, right. I, it, it's astonishing to me. I'm dealing with it on the street level. Yeah. And it's astonishing how entitled people are. People are not getting sober. They are not going to get sober. In a society that says it's okay to smoke meth and be a mom breastfeeding. Yep. You're, you're not going to you're not going to solve any problems if you're just going to change all the rules of a civil society because you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But but even more so, because if you think about it, the moving. So I had all these moving parts pushing me towards sobriety. I had, you know, the no, nobody in the music business wanted anything to do with me. Most of my friends didn't want me to know where they lived. 
No one but no one but Paul T would loan me twenty dollars. But the last two people I had, Wiley, that would that if I ever saw them would give me twenty bucks were Perry Farrell and Paul Tillet. Those were the two people. Would that, you go to Perry's they, house on on Wilton? Yeah, with the yeah. swimming pool on the side. Yeah, yeah, and and it was weird because he would always he was so nice. He was so nice. He would always give me fifty bucks, twenty bucks, a hundred bucks. It he was, lived up in that in the attic, and uh, and so. So, but, but most people didn't want to have anything to do with me anymore. My family, my family had disowned me legally. I was in trouble with the courts over minor violations that now are not, are no longer violations, uh, health and health and safety regulations of carrying needles, drug possession, drug possession, needle possession, um, failure to appear. Um, all these kind of (laughs) warrants are adding up petty theft they're all kind of adding up all the ingredients that led to my sobriety and thousands of people i know sobriety don't exist anymore if it wasn't for fellowship you know i mean and the aa meetings used to be even 10 years ago i used to speak at homeless meetings downtown and you know people were trying to get sober and getting sober coming and living on the streets and and now there's this this new attitude, Chuck. Oh. I don't know how to define it. I don't think we can unring the bell and start hurting people's feelings. We're now going to have to follow this train of thought wherever it's going. And I I don't really think the people who decided it really know. Most of the people that decided what kind of society we should have have never lived in the society, oh. and that is the academic the people that have lived on college campuses their whole lives, you know, and, and this whole kind of agenda that California has and a lot of part of the United States have that, you know, we're just going to not hurt people's feelings. You can't be, call people homeless. You can't call them drug addicts. It hurts their feelings. It's, 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 um, it's, uh, it's not correct. They are houseless. They have, they have, what's it called? Un- unhoused, now? yeah. What's addiction un- called now? Substance uh, use disorder. Substance use disorder, yeah. They might have. I've had, I've had people, I've had a guy check in who's covered in, in abscesses from, from shooting drugs. He's been in 20 treatment centers. He um, has never had a regular job. He was about 32 years old. And his mother and the therapist were on a three-way call with me. And they said, um, you know, we're still trying to figure out whether he has substance use disorder. <laughs> they, they're still oh. trying to figure out whether he has substance use disorder. I mean, we, we, we have H&I, right? Is there, is people do, is there a, somebody in, in recovery or 12 step to reach out to homeless people? Like go flyer, go, what do you do? How do you, you stand across well, the street? Well, you can't, you, have, you haven't mean, been able to go into the jails for two years, <clears throat> year and a half. Yeah. Maybe right, outside, I'm, I'm talking about outside. On the outside, you chum the with cigarettes, you know, you go yeah. down where there's a whole lot of them. You, you, you offer them cigarettes you, and ask them to come into a meeting. You leave a trail. Do, you know, how, how do you carry the message there? Because a lot of those people were in jail. Now they're not in jail. You know, they let a lot of, a lot of people out. A lot of people don't, have you know, but it, Bob was talking about this five and six years ago where it was like, you know, a lot of the, the things that we had where we could say, listen, man, you're finally in trouble. You're going to really do time for this. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. There's and no a such lot of, thing anymore. And, 
and you, there is no such thing. And they just want to keep legalizing and legalizing. Wiley, and- you'll love this. I, five years ago, I had this client of mine. I love him like a son. He gets, he, he nods out on the 101 freeway out near Malibu. His parents live in Malibu. He's been in Malibu treatments a bunch. He nods out, pulls over by the side of the road and falls asleep. Cops roused him. They find heroin on him. They take him to the Lost Hills jail and call his parents and ask them to come and pick him up. Yep. They don't even book him. I mean, that's what's going on. Call well, people's, call 36-year-old men's parents to come and pick them up. Oh. So, so that's where we're at. I mean, you know, there's still the still people getting sober, but they are highly motivated and they are usually, what would you say, Chuck? Semi-functional, midway functional people are getting sober. But the non-functional that AA and rehab were so great at turning people's lives around like mine and Mike's and Wiley's and yours, Chuck, that's not happening anymore. And, and I, and I wonder what we could do to change that trend. Yeah. I, I sit here and wonder all the time, what can be done? You know, well, you've called me a bunch of times, Wiley, about people and they never even want to go to treatment anymore. I grabbed one guy he saying, I can't find my pants. I can't find my pants. Well, I got him <laughs> and I, I got him and I opened the front door of his house and he's like, how did you get in my building? How did you get the, through the security door? And through my front door, I go with a locksmith. And that's how you do it. And and LAPD, one car from Wilcox, a favor was there, and one engine was there. And I said, don't you ever, 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 ever fuck with me. Okay. Got him in the car, and I put him, he wouldn't sit in the back. He's like, oh, you're trying, the doors are child proof in the back. Don't make me sit in the back. I'm like, sit in the front. Well, you know, I child proof that door too. <laughs> on the way, on the way to go drop him off, I take him to uh, where, uh, what's that cemetery? Not the not the Jewish one. The uh, where my mom's buried. Um, um, a forest lawn. He goes, "Why are we going to a cemetery?" I go, "Well, you told me you want to die, so we're going to find it where you pick a place we want. We want us to bury you." He's like, "You know," I said, "We're going to go talk to my friend as an undertaker. We're going to get you a nice <laughs> casket." Pick a spot. And he's like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? You know? it's like, and you know, he's like, no, no, no. Let's get out of here. I'm like, cool. And that's Let's how Bob, Bob, you used to do exactly the same I thing. I did that so with you took Khalil, him to the desert. Yeah. You, you'd take him to the desert. Taken like, honestly, I've taken like four people to Hillel Slovak's grave. And two of them have been sober ever since that day. So that, that needs to come back. That just needs to be reinforced in younger AA members and not just us yeah. old guys. But Chuck knows they'll they'll just label you as a, as a Nazi or a hard ass. Or yeah, some... well, fuck that. Fuck them. Fuck everybody. And then they'll go to the softer people who say, oh, come here, poor baby. Let me stroke your head. Yeah. Oh, you stole from yeah. every friend of yours you've ever had? Poor baby. Let me cuddle you. Have you got some Suboxone? Would you open up your mouth? Put this under your tongue. Okay, come here, poor baby. Oh, no. oh poor oh, baby. Yeah. Oh, poor baby. I would Elvis has no, grown I'm... up. Elvis has grown up with, with the truth, which Sam, his mom, and I were very adamant about the truth. Sid's grown up with the truth. But Elvis, you've, you've seen 10 years of him knowing the truth, right? Uh, I think, Chuck, we met you when you know you, you at my sober living right elvis was living there yeah. with other drug addicts my son lived mm-hmm. in sober living at yeah. four years old so he knew what was up 
So we were at the Hollywood Forever, Wiley, for the Ramones thing, the movie um, thing. Oh. And it was Chris had died since then. And so yeah. there was the Chris Cornell thing. And Elvis was like nine. It was like a year and a half ago. And he, or eight. And he said, uh, he says, is that your friend? And I said, yeah. And he said, did he die of drugs? And I said, no. And he said, and here's the craziest thing. That Elvis knows the world. He goes, he killed himself. That's no. the fucking yeah, truth yeah. of it. That's the truth of addiction. That's the truth of our circle of friends. And my son knows the truth. Yeah. yeah. That's 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 innocence lost, right? No, yeah. that's that's what you were talking about. No, but when, that's the truth. I mean, if you I mean, count if yeah. you count on your kids, like like when I was a kid, I didn't want to be anything like my parents. I don't think any kid wants to be like their parents. They especially in yeah, those but you end up years, exactly they, like your parents. You exactly be, like your dad. You ended well, up later exactly on, you like your dad. No, later on, you turn into them. Yes, but, <laughs> but, uh, but when you're going through your adolescence and your rebellious period, you don't want to be anything like this. So I just figure if I'm honest with my kids, tell them what a fuck up I was and everything, they're not going to be want to. They're not going to want to be like me when I was a kid. I mean, I was thir- I was 13. My dad shot me up with heroin for my first time. Then oh, I became addicted. Then I supported his. I supported his habit. It's, it's long, oh, long God. story, but. Just to circle back, talking about the, the gentleman we were taking in, admitting on behalf, you know, Bob, this guy had the back door at the hospital, at the, at the rehab, he kept complaining, and we were admitting him, he blew in the breathalyzer, and it was a .424, and I called Bob, and Bob's <laughs> like, there's no way, that is, is he, are, and Bob's like, are you at the LA morgue downtown? Is that, and I'm like, no, no, I'm sitting next to the guy. He's like, you're not at the morgue? Like, no. So, 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 or, uh, the gentleman goes, oh, that thing's arcing. That thing's, people have been blowing that all day long. There's a bunch of other people. So they, I said I said to the nurse, please go open up a brand new breathalyzer, take it out of the package, pop the battery in it, pull the little thing out, and stick it in his mouth, and it was the same reading. And, you know, <laughs> four, five. Point, four, two, four, that's a gallons and gallons of pop point, vodka. Point, that's a call wow, point four, shit. two. Well, let's leave the with highest something. I've seen, I saw a 26-year-old girl blow 0.50 oh my god that's that's and she had to go out to my emergency room well let's leave with all a right. positive message well with a positive message all four of us are sober and maybe we <laughs> should just get back to the basics back oh. to the basics of love let's go to luke and buck texas with waylon and wiley and the boys all right i think we should go back to the basics and tar- start yeah. telling people the truth like, I don't yeah. want you to know where I live. Little Louie and Keith, I said, hey, you guys moved? And Keith said, yeah, we moved. And I said, where did you move to? And Keith said, right to my face, two feet away from me, we don't want you to know where we moved to. <laughs> I'm going to have a, I'm going to get a Keith Morris puppet from the Muppets and give it to Bob. Bob's yeah, yeah. Be like, Muppet. What the fuck is wrong with these guys? They're so mean. Wiley, thank you so much, Wiley, for coming back. We love you, Wiley. Go Dodgers. Go Dodgers. Don't die, everybody. Don't die. Watch out for the bear. Watch out for the bear, Bob. See you later. Bye.